For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. It's been widely noted that the peak TV era has been a positive for actresses and female creators. A number of recent shows, including the second season of Glow, the debut of Sharp Objects, and the second season of The Handmaid's Tale, have pushed depictions of female empowerment and rage in new and exciting directions. Joining me to talk about this here in the studio are... Yvonne Villarreal. Lorraine Ollie, And calling in from Parts Unknown... It is Jen Yamato, beaming in to be with you here today. Lorraine, maybe you can get us started. You've written about Sharp Objects and The Handmaid's Tale. And do you feel like there's something new that's happening? Have the sort of depictions of women and what female creators are being allowed to do right now on television, do you feel that that's changed in some way? I feel like we're at the next step in a way. You know, I feel like maybe last year you started to see more female-centric shows, uh, more shows created by and written by women. This year, I feel like the narratives are pushing forward where the characters themselves are pretty angry and pushing back. I feel like Handmaid's Tale, we had the whole story, obviously, of this dystopian future. You know, women are subjugated, sex slaves, breeders, whatever you want to call them. The second season, there's been a lot more pushback and there's been a lot more rage under those red bonnets. And I would say with Glow, you know, last season was a lot about fun, kitschy 80s trimmings, you know, the wrestling world. All that stuff was fun and great and kind of hysterical in a funny way. I don't mean like hysterical bats in your hair. I'm a woman. But in this season, I think, you know, what's gone on is it's sort of folded in a lot of what's been going on in terms of pushing back with the Me Too movement. You know, you have a narrative in there about a studio head, a television studio head trying to, you know, sleep with one of the wrestlers and she doesn't want to do it. And then there's these repercussions very much fits in with, like, this post-Weinstein era. So that's really interesting. And then you have other shows out there, you know, such as Dietland, Sharp Objects. Sharp Objects is a whole other animal. But, yes, there's lots of undercurrents about the patriarchy and misogyny and how that's damaged all these women in this small town. Jen, I know you're a big fan of season two of Glow. And do you want to talk a little bit about what it is that kind of you've tapped into? What is that you like about this new season? Sure. Well, I liked Glow a lot, season one, but season two I binge-watched over the course of, I think, two days over the holiday weekend, and I just love it so much. I feel like this season is, God, it it felt perfect, and maybe I'm still just, like, glowing, terrible pun intended still, from how satisfying it was. As Lorraine mentioned, there are a lot of interesting, I think, ways in which modern-day politics have been weaved into this 80s-set narrative about fictionalized version of a real all-female wrestling promotion from the 80s called The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. For example, the Me Too episode. But the Me Too episode, I actually think is, A, yes, it's very reflective of this moment in time in Hollywood and storytelling, but there are sustained narrative arcs involving authorship and opportunities for women in Hollywood in profession like acting that have just been coming together over the course of both of these two seasons. The character that Alison Brie plays has always sort of wanted more more ownership of her craft and her career, and you've seen that from the very beginning as she's a struggling actress. And by the end of season two, she's really given more opportunities to actually direct episodes of this fictional 
glow television show. So it flips a lot of, I think, things that have been in the works for a long time in glow years, you know, in glow episodes. And that's part of the reason why I found season two so satisfying. There are a lot of character dynamics that I also love because they work not just in wrestling terms for wrestling fans who know what a heel is, know what a face is, and know what it means when you have something like a heel turn or a face turn or a double turn. I think a lot of non-wrestling fans love GLOW and are sort of learning a lot about wrestling and about what makes wrestling so compelling by watching GLOW. And so for me, it works on two levels. That's as a television show with these like great female characters and as a show that understands why it is that sort of sports entertainment as it's known in real world applications through like WWF or WWE, what makes that so compelling and what has made it so compelling for so long to so many people is in the DNA of GLOW. Now, Yvonne, you actually did an interview with some of the creative team behind GLOW, specifically talking about what some people are calling the Me Too episode. And now it's fascinating to me that they wrote this show before sort of the revelations regarding Harvey Weinstein came out. So the idea of sort of a lecherous studio head using his power over the women who work under him, it's not as if that was invented with, you know, last fall. What were some of the things they said to you, how they felt about the timing of the fact that they had plugged into something that was kind of like becoming a bigger thing as time has been moving on and just kind of like what some of the inspirations were for having that in the episode? I mean, this is a show where sexism and misogyny are very much a part of the DNA of what the premise is. These are women wrestlers. And on the surface, these are women that are being objectified and sort of reduced to the sum of their body parts. But the actual women are sort of finding strength in using their bodies in different ways. And for them, it's an empowering thing versus the way that the men sort of behind the scenes are using it. But in terms of that specific episode, I mean, I think what they found interesting was, yes, this is something that predates Weinstein and will continue on after Weinstein. And so because they were concerned that it would feel like ripped from the headlines as they started production and the stories started coming out. But they stuck with it because, you know, it's an evergreen type of topic. One of the things that they found interesting was this is the 80s. And this is very much a time when women suffered alone, suffered in silence, didn't talk about it. I mean, I know I grew up where you don't really express your anger. You keep it all inside. You internalize. That's something we see with sharp objects. You internalize until it sort of explodes. And what we're seeing in the GLOW episode is women finding strength, empower women coming together. But in that particular one, what was interesting was how Debbie reacts, which is, why didn't she just play along with it? Which was an interesting, but it, it sort of fits with the time. Right. I mean, and Debbie being one of the other wrestlers who's, you know, saying to Ruth, you know, why didn't you just play along with this? Because essentially it's your fault now that we're all being punished. And I think there was a line in there where she said, feminism has principles, but reality has consequences. And I think the whole idea of, is this the concern about this being ripped from the headlines post-Weinstein? It's interesting because 
the casting couch thing, all of this about sexism in the industry has been in film and TV forever, right? But it's the way it's being dealt with right now. And I don't think that's particularly, you know, triggered by Weinstein, as you were saying, because this came, that we're writing this before. It's by women writing these things. It's by women being the creators of these things because you're getting their perspective finally. Well, it's like so, the, the phases that we're seeing on TV mirror what's happening in real life where, you know, we were in this phase of internalizing and now we're in the phase of reacting and pushing back. It mirrors what we're seeing. Like for so long we were in the anti-hero, but it was male anti-heroes. And, you know, with Breaking Bad, everyone was all about Walter White and people were giving Skylar crap. Like she can't be this complex person that has all these different shades to her. But if the show were to focus on Skylar now, what would that be like? Right. And I mean, I think what the shows, Mark, that we just brought up at the beginning of this, you know, Dietland, Handmaid's Tale, Glow, Sharp Objects, you could throw about 15 more in there right now. All of them have those underpinnings, as you said, of that bottled up anger kind of exploding at this point. Yeah, I don't know. I would embrace calling it like an age of rage being written on the screen but I, I do think that we are seeing, for the first time in a long time, multidimensional female characters being given the lead spot in a series or a program or a film, even. And that is, I think, a huge difference. Female creators or creators of underrepresented backgrounds that are empowered to hire other writers and directors, as you see on GLOW, where there are a lot of female directors and writers who work on this show. And when... I just think historically we haven't seen balance in the ranks of those people who have the voice in Hollywood. And so when you do give women or other minority, like underrepresented creators, the space and the power to write their own stories, of course they're going to be more dimensional and more complex and not solely heroic. You know, there's a darkness in sharp objects from the very beginning that I find so compelling. Maybe it has something to do that she's a, a self-hating journalist uh, who works terrible hours and has to drink to cope to get through the day. Can't imagine. Not that I relate to that at all. But it's interesting to see these characters. And I think that is one of the things that we've been missing for so long is just creators being empowered to create characters that seem more real. Well, one thing I want to be sure that we, we kind of talk about a little bit with regards to GLOW is just that core kind of relationship between Betty Gilpin's character of Debbie and Alison Bree's character of Ruth going back to season one and then now in season two. They really do complicate it as a word that gets tossed around a lot in talking about television, but they genuinely have a very complicated relationship. I like so much how you see this kind of like daily push-pull between the two of them where they kind of have their own self-interests, maybe the petty things they're each holding on to, trying to reach out and be generous to the other one as a friend, as a colleague and a coworker, and just how sort of nuanced the relationship between those two characters is is something that I have really appreciated as I was watching the second season. Lorraine, maybe do you, what do you think of the kind of the way that that friendship is depicted? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's really interesting and it's definitely gotten more complex and more realistic, really. I think across all these shows, really, the relationships between women, Sharp Objects is a really good example. I had some problems with that show, but 
what is so phenomenal about it is the relationship between the women and how you just haven't seen a whole lot of this on television in terms of really getting into the minutiae of it and also sort of historically like how society has kind of shaped what that relationship is and how oppression has shaped those relationships. You see that in The Handmaid's Tale, in Dietland. But I think what's really interesting in Glow is also we had mentioned that the two women having this conversation about why didn't just Ruth play along with this. But there's also the other wrestlers are talking about at one point, like they don't know that the show's been bounced to a bad time slot because one of the wrestlers wouldn't sleep with the TV head. So they're saying, one of the wrestlers is saying to the other women, really, it's our fault for not being more like the men. We're being too much like women. We're being too emotional. We're arguing among each other. And how many times have you had this conversation with your friends? Like, maybe I cried no, and I was too like much like every a woman. Day. Right. But that's the thing. It, like, gets to the heart of the behaviors that women are supposed to have. And these shows are really sort of breaking down the walls of this idea of how you're supposed to behave around not only other women, but also men. Like, who are you supposed to be depending on who you're around in that certain period. I don't know. It's, like, just very interesting. Yeah, and giving a, giving a look at all of those sides. On GLOW, there's an added layer of these characters are also playing wrestling characters. Wrestling itself is was once described to me in a very surreal memory that I have by the wrestler Diamond Dallas Page at WrestleMania, described wrestling to me as Shakespeare in a, an arena where characters are big and gimmicks have to be pretty like clear and to the point so that fans and the stands can understand the, the narrative of what is being sort of played out in the ring. So it's really interesting to see the juxtaposition of the central friendship in GLOW between Ruth and Debbie. Ruth is playing Zoya the Destroyer, the quintessential villain. Debbie is the all-American heroine, but in reality, who they really are they're both somewhere closer to the middle of good or bad. They both make questionable choices and good choices. So it's really the, the nature of wrestling itself really, I think, serves this sort of depiction of individual characters, and in this case, women, who have a natural complexity, like a realistic complexity. It's been interesting in the second season to see a number of the characters sort of on the wrestling group. Their initial characters they were given were essentially the most sort of stereotypical, superficial view of kind of what they looked like or your most immediate reaction that someone might have when they see a specific person. And that this season, a lot of it's been about them wanting to like change those characters, transform those characters to kind of like get to something beyond or past or underneath that just initial sort of like surface view of what somebody looks like. It's like trying to move past stereotypes. Right. And I think I think the episode episode four, The Mother of All Matches, is one of the highlights of this season to me. And it's a well deserved spotlight for the cast member Kia Stevens, who is one of the she was actually a professional wrestler in her real life before joining the cast of Glow. And she plays a character who has been saddled with this gimmick, this character called Welfare Queen, and it is demeaning as many of these stereotypical roles were for professional wrestlers who are minorities. Like, every single minority wrestler on GLOW has been stuck with the most cliched sort of role to play and is really interestingly pushing back against that in season two. You know, and I think that sort of goes for Dietland, too, in a way, in that Dietland is a 
AMC show, and it's the basic idea is there is a ghostwriter who writes some of the um, responses to letters for the editor of a fashion magazine. The editor of the magazine is very much like Anna Wintour, super fashion conscious, you know, weighs like three pounds. The woman writing the ghostwriting the letters for her is a large woman. She's kind of a shut-in in her apartment. She's kind of struggled with her weight all her life. She sort of hits this, without getting too deep into it, she sort of hits this epiphany of like, I need to go deeper on this. I need to, like, I'm speaking to women all around the nation through these letters and they're responding, but what if we could go deeper on this? And there's this whole other movement happening that she joins up with. But the idea of, you know, changing what you've, the role that you've been given as a woman. And I think we're looking at journalism and the role that women have been put into in journalism. This isn't all the president's men. They're not running around trying to find out, you know, what happened at Watergate. They're writing about lipstick. And this is like, that's been the female ghetto of writing, essentially, has been the fashion world. And I love that they go into this and it's like, oh, no, now I'm going to bring some deeper meaning to this. And there is a movement and like women are starting to rise up through this fashion magazine re- letters response. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing. So it's kind of that same idea of fighting against the role you've been given. If you really want to go like deeper on it, you could say Handmaids has got that going on, too. One of the things I like so much about Dietland, which is adapted from a novel written by Marty Noxon, who is also involved in Sharp Objects. I like so much that it feels so unfiltered, that there's something really punk rock about it, really angry, transgressive. And it just, when I've been watching Dietland, a lot of times my initial response is, I can't believe this is on TV. Is that maybe one of the benefits of where we are with peak TV and the fact that every one of us complains just about every day, that there's too much to watch, that we're like drowning in this sea of content. But that Who means complains? that something, but that means that something <laughs> like, but that means that something <laughs> like Dietland, I don't want to say can sneak in. There can be a space for a show like Dietland where even five years ago, it would not have made it to air. Well, you have to have the right home for it. Like when they were pitching it, there was still the. I mean, she didn't outright name the outlet, but she basically said they deliver stuff with drones. So you can imagine who that was. Um, you know, when she was when Marty was pitching Dietland, the first question after the pitch was, "When does she transform? What's when does she basically get thin?" And wow. so that's the thing that she was still fighting against, but finding the right home where, like, AMC willing to be a little daring or outside the box is really key. Because then you do get the cookie cutter. Barney also was talking about sharp objects and really pushing for that to be told as a TV series. Because if it had gone as a film, it'd either be an indie or if they were trying to make it a major feature would have been called less sharp objects because you can't see these types of women in that way. But also that the show, that at least in the early episodes that I've seen, it's based so strongly in mood and just like these yes. very kind of longerous scenes where not a lot happens story-wise, but it's putting you in this mindset. It's giving you this feeling of this small town and helping you to feel what that lead character is kind of going through. And that, I mean, whole episodes would be compressed into a handful of minutes if you were making that as a feature film. So I think that Sharp Objects is a great example of like what can be done storytelling-wise, like on sort of like the contemporary television landscape. 
And now, Jen, I wanted to be sure to ask you, like, what you think of, like, it's interesting to me that you can have a show like Glow, which is a half hour, ostensibly within the parameters of a sitcom, and then something like Sharp Objects, which is this hour-long, really moody drama. And is it interesting to you that you can be getting at some of the same ideas and feelings and these things that we're talking about, depictions of contemporary women, but go about them in such different ways. You can have something that's more like joyful and comedic like Glow and something that's much moodier and darker like Sharp Objects. Well, yeah. And also, like, we can watch both of those things. Like, I watch Glow and Sharp Objects and can relate to so much in both of them. So it's great that we are seeing so many different expressions of sort of the same things or, or, or same frustrations, long-held frustrations emerge in different ways. And I do think the episodic format does serve this in a way that, and I love movies, but in a way that a feature film with like a two-hour runtime would not be able to without spoiling anything from the first episode of Sharp Objects, which is really great. Um, I think the fact that it takes its time and it is very lyrical in how it paints this depiction of this world that we're stepping into, I think it's all the better for taking the time. And by the time you get to the the end of that episode, it really lands in a very, very effective way. And so to have multiple episodes to, to sort of stretch that out and to like simmer in it, I think works so much better than it would, you're right, if, as you mentioned, if you had to compress it into the runtime of a feature. Lorraine, what do you kind of make of the distinction of tone of these shows, that you can have stuff that's kind of more upbeat, like Glow, and stuff that's much darker, like Sharp Objects? I mean, I think it just speaks to, you know, as you said earlier, there is so much more room now. You know, there's just so much more room to play and to move around. And the more productions that you have out there that are female-centric, the more creators, you know, the more whatever you want to say, the more women involved in this, the more fragmented the narratives become. And that's a wonderful thing. You're not telling like the woman's story. There's not just like all that weight isn't on one show to do that. Right. So that's why I think like you're able to see these themes playing out in a dozen different ways and really interesting ways to where I'm not watching The Handmaid's Tale going, oh, I just saw this in Sharp Objects, you know, or, oh, you know, Dietland, that's just like Glow, because it's not. But when we're sitting here talking about, oh, oh, right, those themes are running through all of these things. You're not thinking that and you're watching it because it's the individual stories of these women. And what they bring to it is individuality. And as you brought up before, the relationship between the women, when before had you ever seen those kind of friendships showing or those kind of adversarial things? I mean, and I would say Insecure also did yes, that too. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think there's there's such there's such a hunger for it. Like I went to the Handmaid's Tale finale screening last night, and yes, it's like it's a dystopian setting. It's not quite what we're living in, but the emotions, like at the core, it's relatable. And there were multiple times during that screening in a room full of like a thousand people or so where they were cheering where they were clapping like seeing the women band together you could feel like they were connecting with what was being said on a deep level and that's like something that we're seeing that these shows are getting acclaim they're getting awards recognition it's showing that there's more to it than just women like to watch this like there's something to what we're telling 
I don't think it's any coincidence that that finale screening was happening almost exactly at the same time that Trump was announcing his Supreme Court pick, which, as we know, has really, really dire implications for Roe v. Wade and a a lot of other freedoms for women, for many Americans. So, I mean, it's not just that these shows, you know, kind of building up from a moment, they're also answering where we are right now and pushing back at where we are right now. And that's just, it's incredible. There's a catharsis in seeing that and being carried through an entire narrative arc and being able to have a catharsis from that experience that you feel might be lacking in actual real life. So I think these shows all serve definitely a moment in time where we need these stories as varied as they are. They, I think all of the creators of all of these project that we're talking about right now, even though a lot of them originated at different times, you know, Sharp Objects, for example, was written like over 10 years ago, right, as a novel. But having them all told right now is serving this sort of social catharsis that I think a lot of women need. Well, Lorraine, you wrote a fantastic essay about the second season of Handmaid's Tale, where quite uncannily, it was often difficult to tell if you were just recounting current events or if you were detailing the plot of the show. Talk a little bit more about that. I mean, what do you think of, like Jen was talking about, maybe there's a catharsis that a lot of people feel they're not getting in the real world right now, that maybe they are getting from this storytelling on television. How do you feel about the connection between what we're seeing on screen and the real world? Is it just, it's not an accident, but it also, it's something that you really couldn't quite design for. Right. It's interesting because, like, with the season two of The Handmaid's Tale, there'd be episodes where, you know, she's in a newsroom looking at the aftermath of an empty newsroom, looking at the aftermath of journalists that had been killed there. This episode ran weeks before the real-life incident here, which, of course, different circumstances, but still very, very chilling. You know, the children being ripped away from mothers, men deciding women's reproductive rights, the rise of an authoritarian government, all of those things you would tune in week to week. And literally, it was almost mirroring a headline. But the scary part about it was that this is something that's supposed to take place in the future. So it's almost giving you like, you know, it's like a cautionary tale, like, look, you know where it started because you're sitting there right now, but here's where it ends up. And then it's chilling on one hand. On another hand, it is, I don't know if it's catharsis, but it's like it's working it out in this fictional universe. And you're like, okay, they're working it out there. At least I'm not living this right now. Things could be a lot worse. But I also think there is the satisfaction of seeing women fighting back and there being results from that. In The Handmaid's Tale, it goes back and forth, right? There's victories and then it gets pulled back. But just that feeling of, you know, something can be done, like, oh, look, they are pushing back. I mean, I do think that is incredibly satisfying, but it's also terrifying. Yeah, like finding your inner strength, knowing that I can't just sit back. If I want the circumstances to change, I have to do my part to see that through. Right. And there's a lot in there about apathy, about how apathy gave rise to this terrible new version of America. And that right there spoke volumes about where we are today. Well, yeah, at the screening, they were like, if you don't like what you see on screen, go vote. So, you know. Jen, were you going to add something? I was going to ask you guys, would you want ultimately a happy ending for Handmaid's Tale or a not-so-happy ending? Yeah, I'm not sure that there is... I don't know what a happy ending looks like for Handmaid's Tale. I'm not <laughs> sure. I, is it uh, 
Is there like a victorious ending? Is there an escape? Is there? I, I'm not sure that you can put Happy and Handmaid's Tale in the same sentence, right. even though they both begin with H. I don't know. Well, I think all is part of what the show is about is that there are points of no return. That there is a, a point at which the society will not go back to what it might once have been because of the fact you just go too far down a certain road. And I think you just hit it right there. I mean, right there. That is why. I think that's one of the best, the best show on TV right now. And I think because they roll so much into it, but that point right there, I don't know that we see anything else like that that is done so well and that hits so close to the bone. And with that, we'll wrap up our talk here today about uh, Glow, Handmaid's Tale, Sharp Objects, and the new era of female rage and empowerment. That's a lot. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, Jen, why don't you tell the good people where they can find you online? Well, uh, you can find me at at Jenny Mata, where I've always been raging. <laughs> and Lorraine? Not just recently. At Lorraine Ollie, Twitter, of course. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Via Really. And you can find me on Twitter at Indie Focus. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.